My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'm Shane. I get the joy of being part of the pastoral team here, part of the teaching team on occasional, occasionally. And it's a delight to continue in our teaching series that we have. We're going through this Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes, a series, uh, the title called Life After God. And, and if you've been here with us, you know that we've been hearing from this, this guy who calls himself the teacher in Ecclesiastes. And, and he's, we know him to be Solomon, you know, the Old Testament king of Israel. And he's basically writing about, about life without God, or in, in, in the sense of a phrase that he, re, he repeats throughout the book is, is this idea of life under the sun, as if the atmosphere contains everything, all the wisdom and all the joy we can find is, is, is anything we can get our hands on. And so he basically plays out all the ways that we look for life on our own. And, you know, he talks about pleasure, and he talks about relationships, he talks about work, he talks about money, and all of them lead to this place that he calls meaninglessness. Me, it's all meaningless. You can't, it's like chasing after the wind is another phrase he uses. You can't quite grasp it. It's a dead end. And, and it's relevant to us today because, you know, as, this, as the name of our series implies, life after God, we live in a post-Christian culture right now. We live in an age when, when people are basically, we're, we're experimenting with, well, what if there isn't a God and how then will we make life work? And well, we need to look at the wisdom from thousands of years ago. Somebody says, I tried all that, and it leads to a dead end, so there must be something else. So that's what we're exploring together, and it's my delight to continue in that here today. But before I get going, I'd like just to pray for the next part of our worship gathering. So I just want to pause, Spirit of God, believing that you are present with us, that you ultimately are our teacher. Would you take this next time, this next 30-plus minutes, and and would you sink some of your words deep into our hearts that we might follow you, we might know you. I pray, believing in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I get started, I want, to, um, I want you to imagine a scene with me. A group of about eight people in a room, say about 20 by 20. They're, the room smells a little dank, like, like maybe it's a basement or something. Or, and, and the lighting is dim. There's only one overhead light, one of those fluorescent lights. You know, it's flickering on and off, like, you know how they, they do that. Over here, there's an old desk. And there's just like kind of a random uh, group, you know, different, different items down there, seemingly randomly placed. And, and, and over here, there's a, a worn sofa and a coffee table with some tattered magazines scattered about. I mean, it looks kind of like a normal scene, maybe a little tired and disheveled. Until a strange noise, a creaking sound, starts coming from the walls around them and, and then begins increasing at a rather alarming rate. And then dust starts falling from the ceiling. The group realizes, this room's about to collapse. 
They, they look around, there, there's no windows or doors or any obvious way of escape, and then it dawns on them, we are trapped in this room. We got to find a way out. And so with more than a little bit of panic, they start scrambling around the room looking for clues of how do they get out of here. All they know is they got to get out of this room. By the way, how's your pulse doing right about now? Can we get a little amped up? But just so you know that the scene I described, it's a real scene, uh, but it's not an emergency of any kind. It's actually the setting of what is called an escape room. Anybody heard an escape room? Okay, a, a few in there. This is a, a popular form of entertainment now for groups. It's, it's actually their escape rooms worldwide. There's several here in the Portland area. There's more opening up all the time because it's become very popular. And if you haven't heard of it, it's basically it's a, it's a group, kind of a team building or just a fun activity a group of people can do from four to 12 people. Uh, there, there's a variety of different ways and they go about it, but they have three common characteristics. First of all, there's a time limit. Somewhere in the room, there's a clock that's counting down from 60 minutes. And so a level of intensity there and a, a deadline. And the second thing that they have is you have a goal you have to accomplish. For most of the rooms, you have to figure out a way to escape the room, hence the name. But there could be another thing like you could you know, like solve a murder or, or banish a ghost or something like that. The third common characteristic is that it's really hard There's a series of puzzles hidden in the room, and you have to find and figure out the puzzles. And and so it could, they can range from like these ciphers, and that you have to, like there's a, over on the desk, there would be like this this Welsh dictionary or something really random like that, or or like this one of them had on the wall, had this like bicycle pedal that you had to turn a certain way in order to get a clue. I'm curious, how many of you, have anybody solved one of these things, been a part of solving on a couple? Okay. I haven't yet. I'm curious to try. But I would imagine if you, if you solved that puzzle, if you escaped within the time limit, if you, if you did it, that you'd have a sense of, we conquered that. We, we ruled that escape room, right? You might even say, in some sense, you'll become the lords of the escape room because you ruled it, right? Now, that's a random example, but the but I reason I wanted to bring it up is because in many ways, life is like an escape room. Life is full of challenges to figure out, full of problems to solve, tensions to manage, and often we do so with some other people. And we usually have some kind of issue, like right in front of us. I mean, that's just, and it just seems like, if, if only I could solve this, whatever this is, then I would be like masters of my fate. I would, I, would, I, would, I would rule life just like I would you know, rule the escape room when you conquer it. A, because th- think about it. On a big picture level, think about this. Right now, around the world, there are astronomers who believe they are this close to unlocking the secrets of the universe's origin so we can discover our destiny. There are historians around the world right now that, who believe they can reconstruct our past better than any of their predecessors and somehow un- unlock the mysteries and understand the human story. There are psychologists who believe they can unlock the deep truths uh, of the human nature with, through the latest brain research. Economists and government leaders who believe they can understand, predict, and even manipulate the, eco- the economies of the world in a way that makes it fair for everyone. There are geneticists who believe they can, they can unlock the very DNA of our bodies and even design a better human. All these attempts to solve the puzzle of existence and become like gods. We have church versions of this. You, you can hear salvation soul is a free ticket to heaven. Behavior codes promoted even though they only have a vague connection to the Bible. 
religious rituals of all sorts that are offered with the promise that you can appease God. Prosperity gospels. Give your life to Jesus and he will give you what you want. All these, in a sense, offered as some kind of code by which you can appease God while still ruling your world. And those are just big picture things. On a day in and day out level, I think all of us seek in various ways to lord over, if you will, our little corner of the universe. We think we can control our lives by climbing the corporate ladder, by achieving financial independence, by becoming popular within a certain social group, maybe even achieving celebrity status. Wouldn't that be something? Or maybe you just want to maintain a particular standard of living. But whatever it is, something insatiable, there's something insatiable in us, individually and collectively, that's like driving us to try to be masters of the universe, or at least masters of our own surroundings. But here's the deal. No matter how big or small our quest, no matter how close it seems we are to achieving it, something always thwarts us. It's like we we can't quite reach it, whatever it is. And even after thousands of years and millions of attempts, every single person, no matter their quest, has ended up in the exact same place. With a few notable exceptions in the Bible, every single person on every single quest died trying to reach it. That's the reality of it. And yet, not that it dampers our enthusiasm at all. We continue to hold out hope that the next door we open, the next discovery we make, the next frontier we cross, that's going to satisfy the craving within us. And the reason I bring that up is because this is basically where we find Solomon, our teacher in Ecclesiastes, at this place we arrive in chapter 7. There's a word that captures well what the teacher wrestles with in the passage we're going to look at and what we wrestle with in life. And that word is paradox. Paradox. I want to give a definition of what I mean by that. A paradox is a statement that, despite sound reasoning and acceptable premises, leads to a conclusion that seems self-contradictory, senseless, or logically unacceptable. Now, that's a big definition, so I just want to give a simple example. You ready? I am lying. Think about it. If I really am, wouldn't I be telling the truth? But if I'm telling the truth, then I'm not lying. Don't, don't, don't try to think it too hard. You're, you're just get your brain in knots, but you get what I'm saying here, right? It's a paradox. It, it, it's a, now, that's a simple example, maybe even a silly one. But what Solomon discovered and what we discovered is this. Life is full of paradoxes. Full of paradoxes. Take relationships as an example. Every relationship exists within a paradox that goes something like this. I need you and I need to be free of you. Okay? Think about it. Friends, working relationships, marriage, parenting, church. And if we're even brave enough to admit it, God, I need you and I need to be free of you. 
And one of the roles that I play here at, at, at Sunrise is I serve as a pastoral counselor. I, I, you know, people come in, we get stuck in life. All of us get stuck at different places, and we run into things. We, we don't know how we're going to find our way through. And a lot of times we wonder, where is God in the middle of this? And that's an honor to be able to walk alongside people when you're, when you're going through that. Inevitably, when somebody walks into my office for the first time, they bring this paradox that I'm talking about. It sounds a little different. It sounds something like this. My life is, doesn't work. I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. This is painful. Uh, please help me, but don't make me change anything in my life. <laughs> Not to pick on them, because I think we all do it. We all think it. And it's a paradox. I want the benefits of change. I don't want to change. Think about this. Jesus you know, God in human flesh came and walked the earth, didn't resolve the paradoxes. He didn't. In fact, he added to them. You want to gain life? You got to lose it. You want to be greatest? You got to be the least. You want to be the first? You have to be the last. Oh, Jesus, you're just making my head hurt, right? How do I do that? But what we have here is a teacher in verse 15. He starts off with basically a, a paradox that's vexing him. Okay, so let's look at verse 15 of chapter 7. He says this, I have seen everything in this meaningless life. Remember, I warned you about this word. If this is your first time with us, welcome to Sunrise Church and our meaningless lives. Now, this is, remember, this is the conclusion. When you live life without the sun or under the sun, without God, you know, you're going to end up, no matter what route you choose, it's going to be meaninglessness. So that's what he's basically admitting to. And part of that is this paradox that he's facing, including the death of good young people and the long life of wicked people. Has that ever vexed you? I mean, don't we have this basic assumption in life that if you live a good life, it should lead to a long life? Isn't that why we eat our vegetables and exercise and, and fight for clean air and clean water? And yet, we have ample evidence that the opposite is also true at the same time. I love it when, when, when some person somewhere in the world reaches one of those milestone birthdays that you're not expected to reach, you know, like 105 or 110 or something like that. And inevitably, some newscaster is going to hear about it, and they go there and they interview them. And inevitably, they ask the question. You know the question, right? What's the secret to your long life, right? And we all kind of lean in because like, oh, I want to live long. How do I do this? You lean in to hear what their secret is. It's going to be, you know, I was a vegan the whole while. I went on the keto diet or I know whatever it is. And you lean in to listen to what they have to say. And inevitably it's something like, I drank a bottle of scotch every day. <laughs> what? I think that that's it's a paradox. And and here's the deal when it comes to paradoxes. You cannot resolve a paradox no matter how hard you try. You can't solve it. What you have to do is come to terms with it, which is what the teacher does with his paradox. So in verse 16, we see him start to deal with it, to try to come to terms with it. So he says, don't be too good or too wise. Why destroy yourself? Did you know that was in the Bible? <laughs> I do now. That's right. I mean, can you imagine a teacher? How many of you are students in here of any kind? You got some students in here? Can you imagine your teacher saying this to you? Hey, we got a final in a couple of weeks. I want you to do well, but not too well. No hundred percents. Or even better, can you imagine the mother of a teenager as they're heading out the door saying, okay, honey, have fun. Don't make too many good choices. I don't, my mom never said that. 
What is a teacher after? Well, he qualifies it some in the next verse. He says, on the other hand, don't be too wicked either. Don't be a fool. Why die before your time? Don't be too wicked? Isn't that kind of like, don't use too much cocaine? What is going on here? So to sum up what I think the teacher's getting at here, you know, in life, in order to navigate life, what you want to go for is a C. You don't go for the A, you know, don't go for the F, go for the C. All right, let's pray. About now, Pastor James is watching this on the video, and he's like, who let this lunatic preach? What are you doing here? What's going on? He's coming to terms with this paradox. And what we need to understand in order to understand the passage is that Solomon, with a bit of sarcasm, I believe, he's not making a moral statement. Okay, this, the topic here is not about morality. Here's what Solomon wants for us. He wants us to know this. No one has a privileged claim on life, whether through wisdom or folly. No one has a privileged claim on life. In other words, neither end of the spectrum will allow a person to master life. The issue here isn't about morality. It's about sovereignty. It's about sovereignty. Who gets to decide? And the teacher's view is that neither virtue nor folly guarantee desirable results in this life. And we do well to pay attention to zealots on both ends of the spectrum. And this perspective allows the teacher to make a conclusion. We get it in verse 18. He says, Pay attention to these instructions, for anyone who fears God will avoid both extremes. Virtue and vice both have limitations. Neither can lead to a guaranteed result. And so he concludes, as he concludes all through the book, that what we should then do is fear God. He repeats that phrase all through the book. Fear God. Now, fearing God does not mean being afraid of God. It means living in awe of God. God is the creator of the universe. He is Lord over everything, including my life and including your life. The question is, will we live in deference to him? Will we live under his authority? And when it comes down to it, the problem with the paradox isn't with the paradox. The problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. It's like my dad used to say. He said, son, wherever you go, there you are. If you think you're going to run away from your problems, your problems are going to go with you because so many of your problems are in here. It's the same is true with a paradox. The issue isn't with the paradox. It's, it's what the paradox reveals about my heart. And, what it's, and, and really what it's about is who gets to decide in life. Do I get to decide? Does God get to decide? This is a heart issue. This is a worship issue. This is a sovereignty issue. Now, unless you think the teacher is dissing wisdom, he, you know, he does a quick rebound in verse 19 when he says this. He says, one wise person is stronger than 10 leading citizens of a town. He's a good guy to have around, no doubt. But then even then, he adds a caveat. He says, not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Why would he add that? Well, that's because wisdom doesn't provide the ultimate answer. It, wisdom by itself cannot solve our deepest problem. Because our deepest problem is right here. Wisdom can't solve that. The teacher then illustrates this with a real-world example in verses 21 and 22. He says, Don't eavesdrop on others. You may hear your servant curse you. 
For you know how often you yourself have cursed others. Now, this is a, an example from his day and age. He had servants. We don't, I don't have servants. You may, I don't. But this was an example from his day. I, but I think the wisdom here can apply to those of us who currently live in the age of Twitter. In, where everyone seems to be just, just ready to vent, vent their outrage at anything. I mean, 140 characters, it doesn't give us room for nuance. It doesn't give us room for context. And it's broadcast immediately worldwide. And even when you regret what you have to say and you try to remove it, you learn the unfortunate truth about cyberspace. What was once in cyberspace is always in cyberspace. And it's there to, to quote and misquote and give vent to, to outrage. What this verse is calling us to do and it applies to us is it's calling, us for, it's calling for humility. It's calling us to admit that, but by the grace of God, there goes I. I, I think what he's doing here is he's it's not just a mere prohibition against eavesdropping. What he's trying to do is giving you an example of living out what he wrote in the other book that he wrote, the book of Proverbs, right? In Proverbs chapter 19, where it says this, sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. But by the grace of God, that's me. And so when I hear that somebody's saying something against me, maybe even cursing me, this is basically saying, well, what I should first do is look at my own failings, how often I've thought that or said that about something, somebody else, rather than immediately going into attack mode. And, and as this is a quick aside, I think, and again, in, the, in this theme of online life, because that's the world we live in, especially for parents of teens, I, uh, this, this idea of eavesdropping actually has a pretty direct application. And that's how do we deal with our teens' online life? Because that's where they spend a lot of time. Should, how much should I monitor it? And I just want you to know, I, I, I believe you should be monitoring your teens' online life. Absolutely. Here's, I think, where the wisdom helps us is that we have tools available to monitor wh- who they're talking to and how often. But I'd be really cautious about actually getting in and reading what they write unless you believe that their safety is in danger. Here's why I say that. Because even the best teenager is going to write some rather unflattering things about you as a parent. Even the best teen. It's part of being a teen. It's part of growing up. It's part of differentiating from parents. We, we, you might have heard the ad, adage that when you, have a, when, when you become 15 years old, your parents become the dumbest people on the planet. And a few years later, all of a sudden, they gained all this wisdom. It, we were once there too, right? So that's part of the process. And so that's just, I think, a direct application of this passage. We have one last section to look at here. And I believe this last section, it's challenging just like we've been to this point, but what I believe to understand this next section, what we need to do is understand how personal it is. I think, in fact, I think this is the most personal that the teacher gets, maybe even in the entire book. It's almost like the teacher or the philosopher kind of takes off his philosopher robe, he puts down his scholar hat, he draws up a chair and sits down across the, the table and he says, let's get real. Let's get real about some things. He says, just so you know, I'm going to do something here that I don't normally do as a teacher. I don't like to do. I don't like when others do it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to switch translations of the Bible. So just a quick aside about that. Uh, We normally preach around here from what's called the New Living Translation, the NLT. I'm going to switch over to what's called the English Standard Translation, the ESV. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there are multiple translations of the Bible. Uh, One thing you should know is that all translations are interpretation, and whoever's doing the translating has a goal in mind and has a method that they're going to use to get there. So they're not, all, they're, they're, not, they're not all created the same. 
And so what I believe is that the NLT, though I have a lot of respect for it, I'm glad we use it here, in this next section, I think they do us a disservice. I think they miss the mark. And so I think the ESV gets us better at the, the heart and the intent of the Hebrew, which is the original language here. So that's an aside. If you don't know what I'm talking about or if you have questions about what I just talked about, I would love to talk with you over a cup of coffee. Use your Connect card. Say, I'd like to meet with Shane. I'd love to do that, okay? But I'm going to move along. We're going we're gonna to continue on in verse 23 of the ESV. He says, all of this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I will be wise. The most important word in that sentence is I. I by myself. See, what Solomon did is he took the wisdom that was a gift from God intended to help him worship God, and he used it as a way to try to figure life out without God. And the result was, it was far from me. I couldn't solve it. I couldn't puzzle it out. And you know what? As a good Jewish boy who grew up memorizing what's called the Torah, which is the first five books in our Bible, he should have known this. Because there's a really important verse embedded in the Old Testament book called the Deuteronomy. It's in chapter 29. It says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to the Lord. Did you know that God keeps secrets? I think this is what's behind paradoxes. God doesn't reveal all there is that he knows. He has revealed a lot, and that's what we're responsible for. There's much that we can know from what he has given us, but he doesn't give us everything. So then he goes on. Verse 25. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. Remember, this is, this is why I think it's really important to see this as a personal struggle, a personal sitting across the table. The woman whose heart is snares, bitter than, more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is a snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made, up, made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now, whenever you're reading through the Bible, and if you encounter a word repeated quickly in a short period of time, you know that that's going to be key to understanding what the, what the writer is about. Did you hear a word repeated? I just want to highlight it up here just so you can see it. This is, the, this is where the escape room comes in. Because this is Solomon's quest. It's just like the, those that are in the escape room. It's like, I've got to solve this thing. I've got to get rid of these limitations. I've got to escape my, these confines. I'm going to figure it out. And instead he came to a sad conclusion. And it's important to keep this as a, as a personal account, sitting across a table, autobiographical. It's like, it's like he says, you want to know what really happened as I sought the scheme of things? Do you want to know what I really discovered? And you can almost hear the bitterness in his voice. Especially as you remember how many wives and concubines that he had. 
He sought to solve the world and he only made a mess of his world. And what he discovered is this. There are, for a guy, there are female relationships that will ruin you. Guys, there are relationships that can ruin you. Now, not all females, not all relationships. And this is a male writer writing a very personal account of what, what, what got him into trouble. Maybe it was a female writer. Maybe it was, I sought a relationship and I thought I found a strong man and I only found somebody who was abusive and domineering. And in the end, he comes to this conclusion. God gave us what we needed. He called us upright. And yet we have taken what he has given us and we have schemed over and over to try to make life work in a way where we don't need God. In the end, we end up in these places of meaninglessness and we sadly discover how desperately we do need God. What I want to do is I want to look at this topic of wisdom and foolishness through the lens of what we might say on the other side of the gospel. Okay, so if you know your Bibles, you know that Ecclesiastes comes in what's called, we call the Old Testament in our Bibles. It was the Hebrew Scriptures. It was the Bible that Jesus had when he was on this earth. And all of these Old Testament or or Hebrew scriptures were pointing toward this promised one called the Messiah. And then Jesus arrives in the scene and he declares himself as the Messiah and he lived this perfect life and then he died a death on the cross for your sins and mine. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, ascended into heaven, and then he gave over the keys to his kingdom to this group of disciples. And then they wrote, again, what we call the rest of the New Testament, they wrote these letters looking back at the Hebrew scriptures through the lens of Jesus. And there's just these whoa kind of moments and one of those moments comes from the apostle paul it's in first corinthians chapter one and i want to look at the same topic through the lens of jesus through the through the pen of paul he writes this the message of the cross okay so jesus dying on the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction but we who are being saved know it is the very power of god as the scriptures say okay so he's looking back at the hebrew scriptures I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? You know, the guys like our teacher in Ecclesiastes, right? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. And that's the key phrase there, the wisdom of this world. We'll see that repeated. Since God in his wisdom, that's the contrast, saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. You cannot get to God through human wisdom. He then he used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. In the world around us, in this life without God, we see both those answers, don't we? We hear people saying, if there is a God, then why can't I see him? Or why can't I see his amazing works? Or if there is a God, it should make sense to me. And it should be, right? We get that. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. We hear that from the culture around us, don't we? But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is the foolish plan of God. A little tongue-in-cheek there. 
The foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, few of you were wise in the world's eyes. That should give us all hope. Or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things in the world considered foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, and here's the point of it all, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. This, my friends, is the reason for paradoxes. God, this is the hope though, God has united you with Christ. That's the good news of the the gospel. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Wisdom is embodied in Jesus. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. He freed us from sin. Do you hear the echoes of Ecclesiastes? Wisdom can't free you from sin. Jesus can. And that is your deepest need. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only in the Lord. And that idea of boasting is about worship. Remember, this is a heart issue. This is a worship issue. If you're going to boast in anybody, boast in the creator of the universe who is sovereign over all. He's sovereign, I'm not. So what we can get from both the writer of Ecclesiastes and from Paul is this. True wisdom, true wisdom begins and ends worshiping God, focused on Jesus. True wisdom begins and ends worshiping God, focused on Jesus. Now we can apply this in a number of different ways. I think the easiest way to apply this today would be to ask yourself, Where do I face a paradox right now in my life? In other words, what do you face right now in your life that you have tried and tried to solve? And it doesn't matter how many books you've read, how many people you've talked to, how many Google searches you've done. It doesn't matter. You can't, no matter where you turn, you're thwarted. You can't solve it. You can't get it done. And you're just, oh, you just have this frustration. I want to be able to solve it. Maybe that's the very place God this morning wants you to relinquish, relinquish, repent, and say, God, instead of trying to solve this myself, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to worship you right here. I'm going to, I want a relationship with you right here, whether or not I get the outcome that I desire. I think all of us can apply that. But in a very specific way, I want to apply the words of the teacher and the words of Paul in a way that may surprise you. Because what I want to do is I want to talk about the Bible. Because as we hear often around here at sunrise, we say, if you want to grow spiritually, you need to read your Bible. Don't just come on Sundays and and, and hear me teach the Bible, although that's an important part of it. But you need to be reading the Bible every day if you can. It's got the words of life, right? You want to hear that from us. Because through the pages of this book... We can know the God of the universe. We can find Jesus. We can receive deep wisdom. There's deep wisdom in here. And we can live a transformed life. I believe that with all my heart. I also know, I also know that this book, in the hands of a fool, or in the hands of someone Solomon just called overly wise, can do great harm and has done great harm, maybe even to some in this room. Jesus saved his harshest words for those who took God's words and tried to use them to manipulate and control others for their own benefit. 
And the reason I want to talk about this is because we live in a day of people trying to live life after God, which means, which means people that if we're hearing messages every day, we're bombarded with messages every day of how we get at ultimate truth, how we can live life after God or without God. It's coming to us constantly from a variety of different sources. And at the same time, we're hearing that this book, uh, it's just an ancient book of, you know, outdated, you know, just full of a few good fables. Now, we know this to be true. We know it has the words of life. At the same time, we need to understand that the Bible was not given to the church so that we could have all the right answers. This book was not given us with complete insider knowledge that that we can somehow fight power with power and dominate the other voices because we have all the answers. We don't have all the answers. God has some things that he keeps secret. We need to approach this book just as we need to approach life with humility. How deep our human rebellion goes when the very Bible that teaches us truth about who God is and about who we are and who the world is around us is used to fight power with power. This, this Bible can sadly become an obstacle to redemption, an obstacle, when we give it more emphasis than we give the God to whom it reveals. This book can actually become an idol that we worship in pursuit of human wisdom rather than an avenue to worship the true God focused on Jesus. And so, my friends, I want us to hear, I don't want us to be foolish or overly wise when it comes to this book. Let us, let us take this book and let us humbly receive it so that we may know God, that we may find hope in Jesus, and that we may help others do the same. Because true wisdom, wisdom comes, it begins and ends worshiping God, focused on Jesus. Would you pray with me? So Spirit of God, again, believing that you are our teacher, that right now you are present. You're present to us. You promise over and over that you are with us. So would you take anything that I've spoken today that is not of you and just discard it? And would you take the words that are truth and embed them deep in our hearts that we might know you, that we might find hope in Jesus? And I also just want to pause right now to ask everyone in the room to consider where is it that I'm trying to grasp onto life trying to make life work in a way that I want it to work. And I want to invite you in that place to relinquish it and to trust God right there. God wants to be with you right there. Maybe for some in the room, it's meeting Jesus for the first time. It's about surrendering your life for the first time. You've never, you've never said, I can't solve my own sin. I, 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 can't, I can't work my way around with my own wisdom to get to God. I need a Savior. Maybe this is the morning you say, Jesus, I believe I receive your death and resurrection for my sins. I put my trust there. That would be an amazing thing that we'd love to be a part of. But wherever you find yourself today, Spirit of God, we relinquish it to you. We trust you. Help us to respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.